Okay, one second. Big plane. All right, make it a soda. You're back. <laughs> Go for it. I will. Thank you. But only if I can untie my headphones from my blanket. Why are you tied to your blanket? Well, I didn't mean for it to be tied to my blanket. Jeez, Sam. I, I, I don't know what you do, but you tie yourself in so you don't fall out of your chair. I mean, that's not unnecessarily something I would not do. You got enough <laughs> negatives in there? Leaving you. Hello, and welcome to Book Retorts. I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast about sharing your weird media with your friends who don't know what you're talking about. But I sort of know what you're talking about, Sam. Danielle, do you do you understand anything about what I've said about Hyperion? No, I, our Twitter feed will prove that. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yes, this is going to be part three of my dive into Hyperion by Dan Simmons, starting with the 1989 novel Hyperion. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, there are four novels and in the Hyperion Cantos, which we'll get to, I'm sure, at some point. Unless Sam gives up halfway through. That is entirely possible. <laughs> <laughs> you can only do so much sci-fi back-to-back before you're exhausted. I might just need, like, a break to recuperate <laughs> with something goofy. It's fine, because in between these uh, lovely retellings, I get to throw in my two cents, so it's fine. Yeah, which I appreciate. And speaking of your two cents, Danielle, why don't you tell us what happened last time in Hyperion? Last week on Hyperion. Well, two weeks ago. (laughs) Uh, Two weeks ago on Hyperion. uh, The military guy, Kassad? Yeah, Fedman Kassad. Fedman. Fedman Kassad. It was like half. That was 50%. That was a solid effort. Good job, Danielle. Um, (laughs) You're always your biggest booster. (laughs) Fedman Kassad, the military guy, tells his story to the rest of the crew. Are you going to tell how they got to where he told his story? I do not recall anything prior to him telling his story. You don't remember them landing in Hyperion and how everyone's trying to evacuate because the Shrike is roaming around murdering? And your favorite part, how the general culture has turned against the Shrike church? Oh, man, I thought that was all in the first one. So, no. Okay, well, apparently they land on Hyperion. <laughs> Everybody's still evacuating, even though it's three years later. The general culture has turned No, no, they haven't started evacuating. Against... They are the evacuation fleet. Well, they are evacuating. It's been three years and they just haven't even evacuated yet? Well, they had to get the fleet. The whole point was they had the fleet was three years away from Hyperion. But they couldn't, they like, there was nobody else closer that could have helped? No, like, how are they going to get there? I don't know. Why is it three years to the closest, like, Well, it's spaceship? not. It's, it's like, a, it's like a, a few weeks, but it's a three-year time debt. Okay, whatever. Anyway, so uh, they get there. They're evacuating. There used to be a bunch of churches and stuff in honor of the Shrike. Well, there was a big Shrike Cathedral in Keats, the capital. Exactly. But now everybody's turned against the Shrike because it went on a murderous rampage and tried to destroy civilization on Hyperion. Well, yeah. I don't know if it's trying to destroy civilization so much, just murdering a few thousand, a few ten thousand people. It sucks when your deity goes crazy and decides to kill everybody. Uh, We'll get to the Shrike, but it's not a deity. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I said your deity. 
No, it's it? not their deity either. It was. <laughs> no, they don't consider. Uh, okay, we'll talk well, about the Shrine Church kind of, later. It was kind of their deity. Whatever, nope. Sam. There was a church in honor of it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mean it's, they think it's a deity. Well, yeah, yeah, believe me, we're going to get to what the oh, Shrike Lordy. cult okay. thinks the, tr- the Shrike oh, is. Shrikey. <laughs> was that your new catchphrase, Velma? <laughs> Shrikeys. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so all that happens. They show up. Is that your new cereal, Shrikeos? Do they go to a bar? <laughs> I'm ignoring you. <laughs> I can tell you. They go to a bar. Cicero's. Cicero's. There's an android there? Yeah? No. Well, I mean, uh, later, yes. He, oh, okay. He's the proprietor of Cicero's who remembers Martin Salinas. He was grandfather? Yes. So the bar owner's grandfather knew Martin Salinas. Yeah. And then later you find out something else that makes him old too. What is the other thing? Oh, Daniel, we'll get to that. But yeah, so an android <laughs> meets them at the bar. Do you remember anything about androids? Um, yeah. Okay. So androids, depending on where they are, are sometimes an enslaved class. Yeah, so they were freed in the hegemony, but Hyperion is, or at least wasn't for a while, part of the hegemony, which is why there were no far caster portals there or quick access to the world web. Mm-hmm. So that's why everything was years away. Got it. And so apparently sometimes they're enslaved, sometimes they're not, except they are used by the Strike Church as like, they are, what's it called? When they're, I mean, they don't have employees? any sin. No, but they don't have any sin. Right. So the the Shrike Church believes that androids are better than people because they have no original sin. Original sin. That was the term I was looking for. That was completely escaping <laughs> okay, my brain. that's not a Hyperion turn. <laughs> no, I know it's not, but I like knew it. I just couldn't get to it fast enough in my brain. I didn't even remember there were androids 30 seconds ago. Sam, give me a break. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so all that happens. And then over dinner at the bar, he tells a story. Yeah? Nope. Nope, no, no, no. <laughs> The android takes them onto a barge called the Benaries. Oh, yeah, the Benaries. I forgot it was a barge, to be honest. The yeah. cousin of the Canary, the Benaries. Right. The Benaries, which is pulled upriver by Mantas. Mantas. I knew that part. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> They're pulled up by Mantas. That was all I remembered of that whole thing. I mean, that's that's cool. pretty much all you get. And that's what he's telling the story? Yeah, they tell the story on the barge. On the boat. Oh, man, I did not remember that at all. Okay. Well, he's telling a story. He tells his war story. And his war story is that many years ago, while he was learning to be a young lawyer, he at some academy. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember at least what planet it was on? Hyperion? (laughs) No, not Hyperion. Mars. It's at the Olympus Command School in the Historical Tactical Network. Oh, yeah. I didn't remember that at all. That yeah, I didn't I know it was some kind of academy, so that's got to give me partial credit. Uh, 10 points out okay. of 100. <laughs> and so they're, he, they train by using a holodeck that's not a holodeck before you get mad no, at me, Sam. No, it's There's no holodeck <laughs> because there's no room. They're like plugged into these immersion creches. Right. So a holodeck that's not a holodeck. Not a holodeck because they... <laughs> there's not a room. I, get, I don't understand how difficult this concept is for you. Not a room. They're plugged in Matrix style. A hollow matrix. Nope. And there is a so he's in this battle and he they do all these historical battles for no reason whatsoever because that's totally supposed to teach you about space warfare. Yes. My and favorite also, part. To just to tell you that there's some kind of reference to something that you actually know about as a reader. And so he's in one of these sim stimulations. Sim stim. Simulations. Sim stim. Sim stimulation. Is that what it stands sim for? Sim stim. Yeah. Simu- simulated simulation would be my guess. Oh my they don't God. Tell that's you. terrible. Anyway, sim that's stim. That's sim stim. <laughs> he's sim stim. Not any better. And he <laughs> comes across... 
Like he's on the kind you of like, what battle he's in? No, Sam. Battle of Agincourt. Yes, it's like okay, sure. So he's in this <laughs> battle. He's on the outskirts of the battle. He sees this guy. He goes up to him, and then there's a woman there, and they both kill this guy on the outskirts of the battle. Yes, sure. Yeah, he chases a man at arms, a French man at arms, into the woods. He's fighting for King Henry V on the English side. Sure, and Not he relevant. is saved. By this woman, and they both murder this Frenchman arms quite brutally. They do, and then they have sex for funsies. Yes. And then it goes on to tell that he did all these different simulations, and in each simulation, this woman would show up, and he loved her and had sex with her every single time. Yes, and they never spoke, or at least she never spoke. Yes, and who knows if he did. He did. He would ask her questions Are and stuff. Are you sure? Because later he's given the choice to, uh, to talk to her and he well, does not. <laughs> he had other priorities. We'll get to that. My most frustrating moment of that story. But all right, we got a, we got a boogie. <laughs> okay. So he has sex with her multiple times. And then I don't remember how it gets to the ending part of that story. Well, then you have the backstory where he grew up on Lucis, I think. No, he grew up on the streets, basically. See, you can't even keep track. Yeah. Whatever. (laughs) He grew up on the streets and joined gangs, and eventually he was sentenced to participate in the John Carter Brigade as part of his punishment when he was of age, right? And then he bought his way out or something, right? Well, he he earned his way out working, uh, and then he went to, I believe it is Maui Covenant, the planet, and he got himself, he finally talked the recruiter there into letting him join the force forces. Force forces. (laughs) (laughs) Best, best thing ever. Uh, rose to the ranks. Remember the ouster invasion? Yeah. So at some point, the ousters decide to take on this planet that's kind of on the outskirts that is not yes. part of the homogeny. Hegemony. Hegemony. <laughs> I do it every time. Oh my gosh. Homogeneous and hegemony, two different words. I know. And every time I say it, I'm like, that's wrong. <laughs> hegemony. I'm also just. We're skipping the whole part where he brought down the rebellion with the crazy prophet guy and exploded his head with space satellite oh, but lasers. Nobody, because does, does it matter? No, it does. That's why I'm skipping it. So I'm just <laughs> okay. letting people know we didn't forget it. We're just skipping it. Okay, the people who are listening to this recap do not care for forgetting to recap parts that we recapped in full in the previous episode. <laughs> Look, I'm just saying we're gonna get a lot of saying, "Hey, you forgot about that part." Like, no, we're just skipping it over. Let's move on. Maybe that's why so Sam is so thorough in his recaps, or makes me be so thorough in my recaps. He's afraid we're going to get letters. Anyway, uh, <laughs> don't be afraid of the letters, Sam. Just skip the parts. And he... Okay, so there's an ouster invasion invasion on the outs, this planet that's not part of Brezia. the... He- Hegemony. And so close. <laughs> Hegemony. <laughs> Better. And there's like a whole debate of whether or not they should actually help because they're not part of the main group. And then they decide to because the ousters end up on... Like doing on planet warfare, not just trying to blow them up from space, because there's a whole thing well, about. There's like, no doubt about them trying to help. It was just a matter of they didn't have any forces or far casters nearby, so it took them several months to get out there to help. Okay, fine. But they didn't really think anybody would do like on planet warfare. And mm-hmm. there's also something about the code, the Bushi- The new Bushido, Bushido code. code. Yeah, that where they're like supposed to be nice to each other. <laughs> Yes, the Nubishido Code was erected to preserve the military class by basically setting forth rules of war. You can think like a Geneva Convention where no civilian targets, two armies, they meet on a battlefield at a prescribed time and duke it out. 
Right. And, and the Oscars are like civilian casualties. Exactly. And the Oscars are like, heck no. And so they go ahead and just blow the planet to smithereens. Scorched come, Earth. Yep. Yep. And then they come onto the planet and start a warfare there. And then they send in, what's his face? Um, Kassad. Kassad? Yeah. You had it a minute ago. That <laughs> came to me. It was slow. Uh, <laughs> you, you should be impressed. I remembered that at all. So they send him in to to help with this. And he realizes very quickly that he can't like new Bushida code the heck out of this so he's Bushido, gonna have to like yes. he's gonna have to basically like treat them the way they're treating this planet and so he goes to like all out war with them and he wins sort of mostly yeah he drives them off through right. sheer attrition basically yep and then um people back on the main planets are kind of like the world web yeah yeah are a little put off by him because he used such brutal uh retaliation techniques Mm-hmm. And they weren't convinced that the Oysters were going to come into the hegemony and actually take over there, correct? Yep. And then they decide to send him off, The whatever, the people in charge decide to send him off. CEO Mina Gladstone. Yeah, CEO Mina Gladstone. You're going to have to remember her name. CEO She's an important Mina character. CEO Mina Gladstone. But we haven't learned anything about her yet, Sam. And I can't even remember the names of the people we've learned stuff about. <laughs> <laughs> There are too many people in this book. <laughs> there are a lot of people in this book, and it only gets more and more as the books go on. This is terrible. So Mina Gladstone's like, well, we're going to send you off for a little bit because we need to like public opinion to cool down and right. you know, so, just go chill out in space. Do you remember how Kassad was injured at the end of the war? A uh, building fell on him because yeah. of irony. And... Yeah, exactly. So after the battle, Billy Bumpsley put him on a slow spin ship, a hospital ship, back to the World Web, takes 18 months to get there, and so they're hoping the controversials will blow over by the time he returns to the World yes. Web. And then Ousters start attacking the ship? Yeah, so they uh, when they approach one of their pit stops on the journey, which is a planet Either that conveniently Hyperion is- Hyperion or the other planet, but really just Hyperion. Uh, Garden, I believe. <laughs> that sounds right. And obviously it's Hyperion, so as approaching, the Ousters decide to attack, and then- Yeah, there's a rogue warship or something there that attacks. And then he gets into a fight with them, and he puts on one of their costumes, and then he meets well, the I woman. Well, I mean, spacesuits. <laughs> Whatever. He meets the woman- that you don't he... remember the ousters and their prehensile tails and uh, Wait, prehensile important? feet? <laughs> you were very excited the fact they could hold guns in their feet. No, it wasn't that I forgot about all that. I just was trying to recap more quickly, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they have fake prehensile tails, but real weird feet. <laughs> yep. Prehensile feet. <laughs> That's a word. <laughs> and he ends up dressing as one of them to kind of try and escape the ship. He somehow manages to re-meet that woman from the Sims. So he, he steals the landing, the invasion ship they use to dock with the spin ship, and he crash mm-hmm. lands on Hyperion in the time tombs, basically. Okay, in the time tombs, and then he meets the woman. Yes? Yeah, so she's there. There's a tree that kills Do you remember people. her name? Uh, she had two names. Yeah, yes. I don't only, remember only, either only of them. one that's important to remember. I don't remember either of them, but she had two because I was Monita. mad. Monita. Sure. Monita they says, meet. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so and far she's so like, good. you can ask questions or we can have sex. And he's like, sex. No, she does not <laughs> offer him that. She says, you must have questions. And he's like, no. And they have sex. I want to be very clear about that part because I'm still angry about it. <laughs> He decides to have sex instead of ask his questions, even though there's a lot of questions. <laughs> and they already have a lot of sex, so, you know, you already know what that's like. Crazy. And then you find, oh, during the sex, she, like, turns no. into a shrike. Way later. Way later. <laughs> Not during the first sex? No. <laughs> during the later sex? Look, we got we haven't even gotten to your vocabulary words of the day. Uh, so at some point, she sees, they, they he sees a shrike, right? Yeah, so... Because he sees this tree that 
uh, kills things like a shrike. The, the, tree, the, the tree does not kill things. The shrike puts things, things on the on, tree. Right. He impales them on this metal thorn tree. To the thorns. Yes. Squiggles. Great. Perfect. With the sound effects that I wasn't going to yes. make. I was trying so hard not to make it sound. I know you really, Danielle, <laughs> you've earned it. Go ahead and make the sound effect. I don't want to make it now that you tell me to. <laughs> <laughs> You're so contrary. I really am. So he makes squiggly noise sound effects as he puts the bodies onto the tree with the spikes. And then... They go to a cave and Monita outfits him with a... She turns him into a mirror. Yeah, it puts like a weird magic force field suit on him. Right, and then she uses two of Sam's vocab words to turn him into a mirror. Yes, um, a feral so like, and a toroid. Hey, 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 you didn't even give me the opportunity to use the vocab words in a sentence, Sam. Oh, I'm sorry, Danielle. You are a terrible teacher. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Why would you teach me these stupid words and then not let me use them in a sentence later on? Danielle, to be fair, I had no reason to believe you'd remember them based on- I remembered on... both of them. One is the end, end of a hose thing or whatever, and the other one is a trout, I don't know, the inside of a torus or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Danielle? You know, color me impressed. <laughs> I do learn things. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. Now, can you please learn me to Gladstone's name? No. <laughs> if you want to get into an argument about it, then maybe I will remember it later. <laughs> anyway, right, they use yeah. Sam's vocabulary words that he won't let me learn for myself. And this You've is probably why them, I don't have I think have I've proven that. I've, I've taught them to you. <laughs> this is why after 20 years, I don't know any of your vocabulary words because you don't let me use them. And he turns into the mirror and then they have sex. Nope. When does she like get all weird when they're having sex? Oh, Danielle, they have to first go meet up with the Shrike and then get rid of the ousters. Okay, well, they do all that. And then you don't she... remember the in, the entire, like, you called this the time war, and there's literally one point <laughs> in this story where there's any time manipulation, and you okay, have seemed well, to have forgotten she, it entirely. She, like, says that she's, he's traveling to the, gonna, he's traveling forward, she's traveling about. back, that's not it. Well, I mean, she mentions that, but what happens is they meet with the Shrike, and there were there are three boats, three dropships of Alistair's that have landed to track him down. And they kill them all. One of them's already been destroyed by the Shrike. And so the Shrike and Monita and Kassad in their mirrored outfits go with the Shrike and the Shrike and then basically slow down time. Oh, yeah, they a big time fight. I forgot. Yeah, they can manipulate time so they can slow it down to like almost like control it. So they basically just slaughter them. It's absolutely brutal. Not new Bushido in any way. Right. And after they've murdered all the Ousters and amongst their bodies, that's when they finally have sex in the way you're thinking. Okay, well, then they have sex. That's the only part that really stuck in my head, Sam, was that they have sex and she turns into a shrike while they're having sex. She does. And almost, <laughs> yes. And not the bird shrike, but like the book shrike, to be clear. <laughs> yeah. She like that's scratches them all up and, and he does it. He kind of gets off on it a little bit. That's a whole other thing. And well, so, kind of. And then he's freaked out and manages to escape her clutches. He's like, oh no, she's a shrike, not a bird. And he runs. And that's the end of that story. Yeah, close enough. And he has not told anybody about her until this very day. And he plans to try to kill them if he ever sees the Shrike and or Manita again. Even though they helped him out. The end. Not bad, Danielle. <laughs> not good either, Sam. <laughs> I mean, you you got the important bits about the weird Shrike sex and the fact that, you know, she and the Time Tombs and the Shrike are all traveling back in time. And so his past is her future and vice versa. Yeah, we didn't even touch on that really other than me vaguely stating it. But yes, that happens. Yep. And you also got all the 
important backstory about the Simstims, which are not holodecks. Yes, listeners. Did that make sense? Please let us know. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on then to part three, which will be equally as confusing. We're doing The Poet's Tale, the oh, Hyperion right. Cantos. What's his name? Martin Salinas. He's the old one. Yes. Okay. So we enter, we re-enter with our motley crew of pilgrims continuing upriver on the Benares, and they find the... <laughs> I'm sorry, Benares is a hilarious name. <laughs> I, I guess so. <laughs> I don't know why it just delights me so. Maybe you can name your future children Benares. Maybe. Or the new cat, Benares. Name a new cat, Benares. <laughs> I should name my current cat, Benares. Well, I'm sure she would appreciate that. I don't think she'd care, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, it is a cat. Anyway, and they find the ruined city of Nyad. Uh, and it's destroyed likely by the SDF, maybe fighting the Shrike or maybe just being idiots. And also with the ferry at Betty's Ford being destroyed, which, great name. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't know, but that really funny. It's Betty's Ford. Okay. Dan Simmons. <laughs> you got a good humor. Uh, so unable to change manta teams for fresh ones, they continue upstream more Manatees slowly. Manatees to change manatees? Mantas. Oh, mantis. Why do I get that word wrong every single time you say it? <laughs> I don't know. I never really changed mantis for fresh ones. They push on more slowly. You really did sound like you said manatees. I'll be more clear next time. <laughs> they decide to have Martin Salinas tell his story now because why not? They just like flip a coin. No, I mean, he was next Spin in the, the Drew Lots in, in part one. Oh, that's right. I forgot. So this story is told in first person. I actually want to mention, I do like how every one of the different stories, I mean, it feels like it was serialized and maybe it was in like science fiction magazines when it was originally published, but each story has a strong and unique voice. Like the first story is told through those journals. The second story is a third person. This one is first person. Like it's just fun that they mix up how the stories are being told. That's convenient. Or not convenient. What's a good word for that? Clever? Yeah. Anyway, so... We fade in, according to Martin's words, like he likes to give stage direction in this piece. <laughs> so we fade in uh, 200 years ago when sad King Billy and his seed ships landed on Hyperion, a world we already up. Yep. We finally got to sad King Billy. Yeah, this is Yay. the story of Sad King Billy. And his seed ships landed on Hyperion, a world already occupied by previous settlers who had, quote-unquote, gone indigene. They greeted Billy, Martin, and the others as gods after they murdered a few of their leaders, and then they turned them into slaves or indentured servants. So, like, Lovely. you know, colonization at its finest, really. So the previous settlers decided to, like, become one with the indigenous people. Well, like, they became the indigenous people. Like, they, they settled there and sort of, like, they weren't part of the world web. They didn't have a lot of technology. They, they went kind of, you know, they went local. I guess they didn't go native because there were no natives there before them. So so there was nobody. The planet was uninhabited prior. Yeah. So they came and okay. became the indigenous population by sort of, like, starting as, as a rural pastoral existence. Got it. And then were promptly enslaved by the colonials from the world web. Hilarious. Yep. History repeats itself. Anyway, so also Martin uh, was in his quote-unquote satyr form then. We'll learn more about that later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Close to finishing his cantos, which he still hasn't completed in over 500 years of life. So he's claiming to be over 500 years old. That's impressive. Good job, him. Is he on his, like, seventh reincarnation, like the uh, other dude? The <laughs> you people? Mean Father Paul Duray and yeah. Leonard Hoyt? No. <laughs> Just 
Just checking. So now we cut back to his childhood on Old Earth, where Martin was formed from frozen sperm and eggs that were stored in the techno core of his mother's estate and artificially inserted into her. This was opposed to other means of artificial insemination, such as, quote, ex-utero fertilization, a male lover with a transplant of daddy's DNA, a clonal surrogate, or a gene-spliced virgin birth. But his mother preferred the traditional way, and so he was born on Old Earth. So what's an ex-utero? So like they grow him in a tube. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Literal test tube baby. Got it. You know, outside the uterus. I knew what outside the uterus meant. I just wasn't sure if a uterus was still involved somehow. (laughs) I mean, you have like an extra uterus like out there or something. (laughs) All right. So this was after the big mistake, but not yet when the world had been rendered totally uninhabitable. Do we know what the big mistake is yet? Or was that mentioned last time? We never got an answer. We're about to learn it right now. So the big mistake apparently involved the Kiev scientific team and a little black hole they made that was slowly eating the Earth. And for the moment, accidentally made that darn black hole. Well, they they made the black hole on purpose, but I think they actually like got out or whatever, and now it's destroying the Earth. Like they lost control of it, and at the moment, it's only causing periodic earthquakes. Broke out of its cage with bananas. (laughs) With bananas. Went bananas. Okay, sure, Danielle. It's a black hole. I don't think it really goes bananas. (laughs) No, no, no. Seemed to take over old Earth. So during the bad times when the earthquakes were more <laughs> present, I'm going to ignore that. I just think it's funny that he has these like these fancy words for everything. And then this particular topic, he's like, the bad times, the big mistake. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, that's what people would call it. <laughs> just funny. I mean, we call them World War One and Two. We're not that creative. <laughs> I know, but he, and he before as that, a writer, was called the is Great more War. Like, come on. <laughs> I know, 100 years war, et cetera, et cetera. A war of 1812, like we're not creative as people. <laughs> we just want it to be specific so you know what we're talking about. Right, and so the big mistake is pretty specific. Except that there's lots of mistakes one could make, Sam. Yeah, but only one destroyed Earth. <laughs> so when the earthquakes were bad, they vacationed at his uncle's place on a terraformed asteroid, which the ousters had brought near the moon just before their migration. For fun? Well, they'd probably been collecting asteroids to create their migration fleet. They have a migration fleet of asteroids? Well, I mean, they have like comet farms and, and asteroids and these city ships and stuff. Like it's a whole flotilla. And they just flotilla. follow along behind them? They like, I don't know, Danielle. How it, does it all, work? <laughs> they like have all, like there's not a lot they need. Like it's not like an ocean. They can just sort of like propel them, attach engines to them or something. I don't know. Like they fly the moon away, them. like in uh, The Gods Themselves. <laughs> I was just going to ask that. I was like, like the moon? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll learn more about the Ousters at some point. Oh, God, I hope they fly the moon away. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. I don't know what happened to the moon, probably. It got destroyed. Maybe the moon got destroyed, too. I like that we're almost 100 episodes later. Is this our 100th episode? <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> okay, well, we're almost 100 episodes later, and we're like still talking about the moon flying away because it's hilarious come on that's a great idea (laughs) all right continue on i apologize and martin goes on to say that he was clearly born into wealth and that old earth aristocracy had sought to sort of get rid of the riffraff by encouraging them to leave and settle on other planets by sponsoring spinship exploration or farcaster migrations and basically have been isolating themselves as a sort of hoity-toity enclave for many generations as enter like not part of the world web or anything like that. That's so sketchy. Yeah. So thus Martin was never exposed to poverty except for one beggar in India that was kept around for quote unquote religious reasons. <laughs> what? That's all it says. <laughs> that makes no sense. Mm, apparently it doesn't, but here it is. 
Also, the North American Preserve was where he spent uh, a lot of his time and where renegade arnists had resurrected long extinct species. Though fortunately in the Midwest, the dinosaur herds were scarce, so it was safe to travel there. I'm so glad they talked about dinosaurs. That was my next be. question immediately. <laughs> what about the dinosaurs? <laughs> what do you mean? What about there weren't any dinosaurs until they remade them? I know. I was going to ask if they made the dinosaurs. That was going to be my question, and you answered it immediately. Because yeah, he knows what's up. <laughs> <laughs> that people are only reading his sci-fi for dinosaur. Yeah, that's right. Well, at least you are. Yeah, it's not inaccurate. <laughs> so Martin felt no compulsion to leave or join the Hegira or the newly forming world web. And he knew from his earliest days that he always would and should be a poet. He was given a tutor named Balthazar, who was ancient and kept alive with early Pulsin treatments and was just so unbelievably horny. It would drive away pretty much any young female creature, human or android, from their employ because he would not stop just going at it. Was he well there's so much to unpack there. Was yep. he horny because he was old or was that just his personality prior to them trying to make him live for like a zillion years? I don't know, Danielle. It's never elaborated on. He's just old when we meet him and he's also horny when we meet him. And did you say sex with androids? Yeah. Absolutely. <sighs> Why? I mean, I know, but why? Yeah, I was going to say, Danielle, come on. We're already trying to make sex robots now. I wasn't surprised. I just wanted to make sure that that was what I heard. Yeah, and he did not discriminate, apparently. That's nice, I guess. So this guy was kind of a Luddite, and he shunned, quote-unquote, progressive education, which included, quote, RNA medication, data sphere immersion, systemic flashback training, stylized encounter groups, and pre-literate programming. So okay. future education man, it's wild. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, he just had Martin memorize the classics like the Odyssey. And Martin's early attempts at poetry were terrible, admittedly terrible. And even when he managed to uplink some of them to the ring or to Mars and so to the burgeoning Farcaster colonies, he never got any responses. So, Aww, you know, poor Martin. Womp womp. Couldn't get published. <laughs> so then just so, shortly before his mother died, when he was around 20, he learned that she would die and leave the family severely in debt to the Ring Bank, which had financed their lifestyle up to this point. So his mother made a plan for him. She liquidated everything she could, put it all into high-yield long-term accounts, and then shipped him off to the Rifkin Atmospheric Protector on Heaven's Gate, a minor world orbiting Vega. <laughs> yeah, got that? No, I just like, he's so creative, this author. Right? <laughs> like, just makes up nonsense all day long <laughs> it's really hard to make up like names for things and he does it with alacrity it's great he just throws them out there you probably never hear from half of this stuff again but it exists in the book <laughs> i mean Benny is a real star so no, that's i know fine. that he always likes to like put his stuff kind of near something you sort of understand yeah yeah give at least a, a, a veneer of context yeah it's impressive good job mr simmons yeah so here was the trick. He was placed on a phase three ram ship, which is slower than light, and who's in cryogenic stasis. A trip that took 129 years with an objective time debt of like 167 years. So like nearly 300 years total, I think. Okay. And the idea was that while he was in stasis, the interest would accumulate and leave him with enough money to pay off the debts and live comfortably when he was defrosted. I feel like if we could do that now, people would 100% do that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the only way to get rid of student loans, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true because it's funny because it's true. <laughs> it's sad because it's true. And it's also sad because it's true. 
So however, weeks into the trip, Old Earth was destroyed by the big mistake, and that was the last we'll hear of Old Earth in this book, or is it? Yes. Is the bank, I'm sorry, you probably said this, was the bank off-planet? Yeah, so the ring bank, I presume, is off-planet. Okay. I'm not 100% sure on that. They don't so, specify where the ring bank is. The destruction of Old Earth doesn't matter for his banking needs. Well, Danielle, funny you should mention that. <laughs> All Old Earth account were frozen when Earth was destroyed and appropriated into the world web economy. So he was actually left with nothing. <laughs> That's so sad. Right, they're like, oh, Earth is dead. Everyone who had Earth, you know, based accounts, well, your money's ours now. We're going to like... Can you do that if they got off Earth? Wouldn't it still be their money? Well, I, I don't know, Daniel. I guess it was some kind of like, em- not eminent domain, but like civil forfeiture, maybe? Something like that. That seems very questionable. Oh, oh, under 100%, Daniel. Like, if they died and there was nobody to take the money on, then sure. But if, like, you were still existing outside of Earth. (laughs) But to be fair, also, like, he was not there to defend it. His mother was dead. Like, all, like, there were no, there was no one, no claimant on the account that was in a state that could make any protest. Yeah, but you would think that they would have had to have told somebody that this is what was going on. Otherwise, when she passed on and it looked like her son didn't exist, and yeah, the money would disappear. So somebody somewhere must have known that he was going to come back and get his money. Maybe, or maybe they didn't care. Maybe they are terrible planners. That's also possible. So he is left with nothing on Heaven's Gate, which is a hellacious place with an awful atmosphere that crippled people and left children's skin scabrous by the age of five standard, their eyes watered incessantly from the sting of an atmosphere which would kill them before they're 40. Okay, deep mini questions. Like, why does anybody live there and why is it called that? Heaven's Gate? I don't know why it's called Heaven's Gate. It may be an allusion to the Heaven's Gate cult. From, mm-hmm. you know, the 80s, something like that, 70s, 80s, wasn't there a cult? Sure. And I don't know if that's the reference or not. And why didn't live there? Because there's presumably something of value on the planet that is being extracted or mined. And you want your little kids to be raised on it? <laughs> I don't think they have a choice. I think it's more about indentured servitude again. Okay. As long as they're not there because they want to be, because that seems wild to me. Yeah. So to add insult to injury, Martin had suffered a stroke in stasis, which was not uncommon in those old ships, mm-hmm. and had lost nearly his entire vocabulary, with the exception of a handful of vulgarities. So it's like, you'd only say like seven swear words. <laughs> That's helpful. Yeah. So he was put to work in the mud pits, and he spent three very formative years working in the mud pits as an indentured servant with his quote-unquote friends, Sludge, the scoop shovel foreman, Unk, the slumyard bully, and Kitty, the local prostitute. Did he keep his intelligence but just wasn't able to communicate? Or Yeah, like just... the language center of his brain was damaged but nothing else. Okay, got it. So he had full thought but no expressive ability. And so there's a lot of philosophy about how stultified humanity had become and complacent in the sprawling world web and how like, oh, you know, we used to advance science technology by leaps and bounds, but now it's sort of crawled forward. And so in the time he was in stasis, the world web formed and the all thing became part of the hegemony's democratic leadership and the technocore seceded from humanity and then came back as an ally rather than a slave. And apparently like humanity just sort of grown stagnant with their advanced technology and sort of decadence in the okay. world web. So all thing, we're going to learn more about that, right? The Please? all thing is something. I'm not quite sure. Okay. <laughs> it's <laughs> art, I believe the all thing, we'll get to the all thing. I believe it is a, it represents a artificial intelligence collective politically. Okay. And then the, what was the other one? The technical? Core? Technocore, which is the collection is like the AI, AI universe. So what's the difference between the Technocore and the All Thing? I think the Technocore is like the world and the All Thing is like the representation on 
the hegemony. Like, why is it so complicated? Again, Sam? I may be wrong about all of that. <laughs> I'm just basing that based on what I've gleaned from these three stories. The all thing is related to AIs and the Technocore, but it's also distinct in a different way that I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Let's see. But what the I- point <laughs> is, the AIs not only were sentient, but had gained independence. Right. I, I vaguely remember that, and I gathered that from your statement. Yeah. So that's that's the important thing. But then it come back to help or join the Well, they basically the rejoined like, the hegemony. Say, hey, we'll join the hegemony, but as you know, our own, own sentient citizenry. Yeah. Right. Got it. Good for them, I guess. Yeah. You know, them and the androids got out, at least in the core worlds. Absolutely. Is the hegemony evil? <laughs> I mean, is any human society evil, Danielle? It's not good or evil. I was just curious if the book was going to like lean into it and make them like way more terrible than they are right this moment. I think they're supposed to be just like a representation of humanity. Like they are powerful. They are good for the people who live in the hegemony. It's not fair or equal (laughs) or particularly kind to outsiders. So anyway, apparently this prison-like indentured servitude was just super for his creativity and his writing, because apparently writers thrive in prisons, according to Martin. Well, they have to they have to have a tragic backstory, like the one guy from uh, Fool on the Hill. Remember? Yes, he of only, <laughs> He only did well when he wasn't having sex. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> And there's a lot of philosophy. Like, this is a hard story to relay because it's very introspective philosophical, and I'm going to gloss over a lot of it because it's interesting, but it's not fun to talk about in like a look how weird this is kind of way. I'm so glad you're sharing this with us, Sam. But I am going to share <laughs> this one line because it's great. Martin says, It might be argued that the Siamese twin infants of word slash idea are the only contribution the human species can, will, or should make to the raveling cosmos. To be a true poet is to become God. Okie dokie. Yes, he's basically saying that humanity's best contribution to the universe is language and that poetry makes him a god. He's very modest, this this guy. (laughs) He goes on to say that even with the examples of alien intelligence life they found, like the Shrike or the Labyrinths or whatever, they have found no writing left behind or no language of any kind that they can discern. So therefore, they can't possibly communicate. Right. And I'm thinking, okay, but I think he's trying to say that like the written word might be uniquely human. Okay, sure. That's what his assertion is. There's lots of other things out there, though, right? What do you mean, things? Like, okay, we've seen the Shrike and all the AIs, whatevers. Are there, like, other alien creatures out there? As far as I know, they haven't found any other intelligent aliens alive in the universe. That seems so unlikely. I don't know. I mean, you look at the Drake equation or the Fermi paradox, like the idea that there probably are lots of alien civilizations, but first, they have to coexist in the same location during the same time span, and people and, and civilizations are likely to wipe themselves out. Mm-hmm. before they have a chance to encounter other alien species just because of the vastness of the universe. So maybe it doesn't make sense. I'm not going to – I don't really know a lot about it. But according to this novel, at least, there is evidence of ancient alien civilizations, but no modern ones that they have encountered. Okay. 
Let's go with it. I mean, if humanity wipes itself out, it would be like, oh, okay, they had 500 years of space travel and then they're gone. So that's not a lot of time to meet aliens. It is not. You're correct. And humanity may well wipe itself out. Exactly. So that's sort of the idea is like, oh, you have to not only have a spacefaring civilization, but one that can exist long enough to find another spacefaring civilization. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so humanity, language, big deal to Martin Salinas. But back on Heaven's Gate, Sludge dies in a mud quake. Kitty got married and then died in childbirth after the green tsunami carried away Mudflat City. And then Martin continued to write poetry, but at first without words. So I don't know how he wrote maybe with pictures <laughs> or drawings. <laughs> I was almost like drawing, like, oh, it's the sun. There's my poetry word. With the seven words that he knew, Sam. <laughs> right. It was unclear, but he does slowly regain his language skills over time. Like his vocabulary slowly returns over weeks and months that he is working on his cantos, which he writes on the toilet paper they provide. Does he relearn the words or do they just like come back to him? They come back to him. Like it's sort of like it reawakens within him as he sort of practices the skill of writing. Okay. And then didn't he have three friends? So two are gone, but one still well, remains. The, the the bully, unked the bully, still around. The one okay. he pays protection money to. I don't call him a friend. He's his acquaintance. Sure. <laughs> so one day, while he's carrying his cantos to the company library to do some research, Unk comes up to him with two cronies, and they're like, "Demand the protection payment." He has no money on him, and he gets a little sassy with them, and so they beat the ever loving crap out of him, <laughs> leave him basically for dead in the mud. But. He is saved because it happened to be a passing EMV carrying the protectorate air quality control manager and his wife. And the wife, Helenda, you know, calls him to land the EV and takes him to the hospital and saves him and gathers up the cantos. And she reads his cantos while he's recovering in a renewal nutrient tank. So Helenda took the cantos to Renaissance via Farcaster and told her sister about it, who had a friend whose lover knew the editor of Transline Publishing. Renaissance is a planet? Renaissance is a planet, Danielle, yes. Okay. You say that as if I should know. No, you shouldn't. It just it just <laughs> is. <laughs> so five weeks later, Martin published his book, and a week later, Helenda divorced her husband to marry him in her seventh <laughs> marriage. Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? He seems like a catch. Yeah, Martin, what's not to love? He's instantly, you'll see why probably right now, because the book was an instant success after being titled The Dying Earth, and it was largely due to his editor, Tyrena Wingreen Fief who focused the novel just on the nostalgic old earth parts of the cantos of the poem. And it hit at just the right time, and in four months, sold two and a half billion hard facts copies, and abridged and digitized versions were available on the Sea Thing datasphere, and it had been optioned for Hollies. Martin was made instantly and insanely wealthy and famous, and was appearing on things like the All Net Now show with Marmon Hamlet, and met the CEO, Senator Perot, and the All Things speaker, Drury Fane and given honorary degrees at the University of New Earth and at Cambridge 2, which is my favorite university name. <laughs> Cambridge 2. Cambridge 2, the sequel. <laughs> now more Cambridge than ever. <laughs> that's such a lazy name. <laughs> I know. That's why I love that. Like, what do you want to call the new Cambridge? Uh, Cambridge 2. Brilliant. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Do-overs. So... He's very wealthy, brand new wife, everything's going good for Salinas. He buys this insane home where the rooms are spread between 36 different worlds and the doors between them are all Farcaster portals. I mean, that's cool, but why? 
Because he's wealthy and eccentric. Like, I'm going to tell you all the rooms in this home, or at least the rooms he tells about. And this goes on for a page, like a page or two in the book. I'm going to summarize because it's still hilarious. So the dining hall is on Renaissance Vector near a volcanic peak. The formal living room is set on Point Prospero on Nevermore above the Edgar Allan Sea. The library is on the glaciers and green skies of Nordholm. A tower study is set in the peaks of the Kushpat Karakoram range in the Jamnu Republic on Deneb Dre. The bedroom is set in the boughs of a 300-meter-tall world tree on the Templar world of God's Grove. So we're back with those guys. There's a solarium on the salt flats of Hebron. The media room is overlooking a skimmer pad on the 38th floor of Tau Ceti Center mm-hmm. in a skyscraper. There's a patio that overlooks the market in the old section of New Jerusalem. And the exercise room is in the lowest level of Lucis's deepest hive. And the guest bathroom, which consists of just a toilet, a bidet, a sink, and a shower sitting on an open raft on the violet sea world of Mare Infinitus. Okay, I have a question. Yeah, please. These rooms, <laughs> yes. do they... Like, in the planet or space that they go to, do they exist in those spaces? Yeah, so they exist as like, oh, there's a glass room with no entrance besides a forecast report you can only get to from the other rooms. So people can, like, see it from the outside, potentially. Yeah, like, they exist there. You just can't get into them. Do you have to, like, get permits or something to be able to build in all of these places and then build just a room? Danielle, (laughs) I... So do not know what the permitting or zoning process for the future hegemony is like. I cannot answer that question. Can you have too many of the Farcaster portals? Is there like a cap in each space? So like so there is no cap to Farcaster portals. They do cost money, though, to maintain. So you have to like pay to have them on the Farcaster network or pay every time you enter or leave a Farcaster portal. Is the Farcaster like network, is that science-based, magic-based? Like, how does that it's work? It's science-based. I mean, I don't know how it works. We, we might get into it later. It's just, it is the instantaneous teleportation between points. And there's some kind of, like, Wi-Fi network that you have to be, like, paid to access. Right. Like, it's maintained by something. Do they sometimes not work ever? I don't Maybe know. down? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you can turn them off. Like, I think at some point we'll get to it. He disconnects a lot of the portals to save money. Interesting. Okay. I think it's like the inter- think of like the internet. Like, you can connect yeah, to it. Let's say it was yeah. like Wi-Fi-esque. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, I mean, that's cool, but. A choice someone has made. <laughs> Seems like a lot of work to build a house. <laughs> yeah, but you know, rich people are going to do eccentric things, and <laughs> like I think most rich, people rich people's houses are ridiculous as is, with their you know dozens of rooms or whatever. No one needs that. No. Okay. They're just status symbols. So anyway, that's a rundown of his insane house. Oh, one more. Did he have the house made or was it already there? No, it was already built by some famous architect. So think like a, like a, a Frank Lloyd Wright of the era. Right, and so he bought it. Okay, well, mm-hmm. good for him. But yeah. later he shuts stuff down. Does he lose money? Danielle, let me get to the story. That's all part of the story. <laughs> so we spent little time in his home because he and Helena would prefer to be out and traveling with their friends that they called the Caribou Herd, which consisted mostly of writers and other artists and aristocrats and recent celebrities like himself. So quote unquote, everyone drinks, uses stims and auto implants, takes the wire and can afford the best drugs. The drug of choice is flashback. Which gives you flashback. 
Well, yes, it does. But which to use requires biomonitors, sensory extenders, an internal comm log, neural shunts, kickers, metacortex processors, blood chips, RNA tapeworms, etc. That seems like a lot of work for a drug. It is. So Martin had tried flashback twice. The first time was pleasant. He spent about nine hours reliving his ninth birthday party. The second time he uses flashback, he flashes back to when he was four and is upset about a boo-boo and he runs to find his mom, who is non-responsive, in the throes of her own flashback addiction and it's very traumatizing for him okay so he can you, you can't pick your flashbacks correct i don't know i, I presume not okay because those don't seem like what you would necessarily pick if you could pick anything in your memory and yeah. then his mom was addicted to the same thing but he's trying it anyway yeah i guess so like he's very much at this point laissez-faire about life Okay. Did he know that his mom was addicted to it? Or did he find out through this flashback? I don't know. I mean, he mentions that he saw an empty flashback syringe or ampule or whatever when he found her, but I don't know if he was like four years old if he knew what flashback was. Right. So I don't know if he like figured it out later or now or whatever. This book is not describing the situation well, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> it's describing it, like, again, poetically and sort of like, it just sort of glosses over the fine details. It gives you the sense of things. Okay, but it does stem a lot of questions. And then what am I supposed to do with those questions, Sam? You can't answer any of them. No, I can't. You're supposed to just sit with them, Danielle, and then bask in the fact that the universe is bigger than the answers you have. Okay, the questions I have and... No, the answers you have because you don't have... Or the you have answers all the I have. Want. Okay, you know what? I have a lot of questions and that does not sound like a place <laughs> I want to bask in. <laughs> you wouldn't want to bask in it either. <laughs> you got to learn to accept your ignorance, Danielle. You, you can't have all the answers. Uh, okay. <laughs> so he swears the stuff off and drifts further and further away from Helenda because they're no longer hanging out. And eventually, after 10 months, she divorces him. And he thinks that was going to happen anyway because he was nothing more than like a boy toy to her. And also, it's her seventh marriage. There's a pattern. Right. So Martin dives into the data sphere almost full time, sort of addicted to the raw data. His first sort of experience of like, imagine a guy coming from Earth with no data sphere coming to this place where there's suddenly a data sphere. It's like taking someone who never used the internet and like throwing them into the internet, you know, deep end. Is that the data sphere is? Is the internet? What is it? it it's I like mean, there the, wasn't yeah, really it, an internet, but you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like an interconnected computer network, basically, okay. an information network. And we also became political, engaging in debates on the all thing. And it was estimated that the all thing dealt with about a hundred pieces of hegemony legislation per day. And during his month screwed into the sensorium, he missed none of them. So the all thing is some kind of political body in the data um. sphere. Okay. <laughs> Legislate the political body of the data sphere as part of the hegemony. That's all I got, Daniel. <laughs> Not helpful. Well, I, I'm sorry. So he stopped when he realized staying constantly connected to the all thing meant never leaving his home or becoming a walking zombie. So like always having like, I think Google Glass, that kind of thing where you're always plugged in and never really present. Why is it called the all thing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't it just, know. It gives the sense of like... I would say some kind of like deity or something. I think it's called the all thing because it sounds cool, Danielle. I mean, it does sound cool, but it also sounds like it's some kind of like overarching, larger like than life. It encompasses thing. everything, not just like AIs. But yeah, I don't like know. it's a very and it's a very odd choice. Maybe if because it's, not... it's like the the uh, the sum total of human knowledge is used in the all thing. Okay, I do not understand the all thing. I'm gonna put it out there, and maybe later I will understand better. <laughs> At this point, I don't understand it much either. I'll tell you that. So eventually he became religious, founding a few religions and then finally settling into Zen, <laughs> into the Zen Gnostic Church. 
<laughs> founding your own religion. You're just kind of like, you know what I think? Not his own. <laughs> I, th- I think he like joined like, a, like, you know, like, oh, let me get into this new religion. Let me help get this one off the off But the you ground. just said he founded his own religions. Founding a few, I said. So I'm yeah. assuming he like helped establish a few religions. Are you sure? He could have just been like, this is what I think. Anybody else want to think it with I me? I mean, the literal <laughs> wording is just he founded a few. He, he he became religious, joined a bunch, founded a few, and settled on to his agnostic church. larger question about people who found religions. Like, I can't answer this question. No, that's human nature. <laughs> like, where in your brain – I mean, it's not, there's got to be some precursor to you thinking, I understand religion better than anybody else, and this is a true religion. <laughs> Danielle, that's like everyone who thinks that their religion is true. Everyone believes that they have all the answers. I know. At least sometimes you're like, there's, there's already established religion. So you're like, okay, I have the the weight of history behind me on this religion. And I can understand that a bit more. But if you purposefully like, I'm going to create my own religion. Yeah, yeah, you're no basically asking why are humans <laughs> arrogant? And like, that's a that's a question like, oh, why do humans breathe, Danielle? <laughs> that's a dumb question. I just said that was a dumb question. I, I didn't really think you were going to answer this question. I'm just saying it's impressive when people start their own religions. <laughs> Look, you know, I don't think it's anything different than people think like they know everything. Like, oh, we don't need experts. I already know all about some topic. I'm, it's like the Dunning-Kruger effect or yes, whatever. I get it. I know. I, I understand humanity, sort of. I uh-huh. just... <laughs> and then you just, seem confused that people would found religions. I'm just always impressed by it. I'm not confused okay. by it. Just, just wildly impressed that it's not even taking on a religion that already exists where you can kind of like trick yourself into thinking that nobody ever came up with this religion on the fly that maybe it was gifted to you from some higher deity power but like maybe that's what they think when they start their own religion is that some like deity told them this is the correct religion i think they're either they're crazy or something and think like oh i have all the answers and someone's talking to me or they're like opportunistic like oh i have this great thing i want to do and hey this is a good way to get people to follow me like a cult (laughs) yeah well which one's a cult religion is is basically time (laughs) right (laughs) So, all right, moving on. Just curious, curious, curious how the founding worked. I, there doesn't it does not mention anything that except that he founded a few. That's literally the only words he mentioned about founding religions in the entire book. So, I'm are sorry. we supposed to like this character? Or are we supposed Martin? to be kind of yeah? I don't know if we're supposed to like any of the characters. Frankly, I think they're all supposed yeah. to be just like weird, three-dimensional, right? Human, human beings. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So he would far cast with abandon to many worlds using the gold universal card Transline Publishing had secured for him based on the success of his book, going on religious excursions to find his places of power. But with so much far casting and the immense cost of maintaining his home and the divorce settlement, because his wife really took him to the cleaners, soon took a toll on his finances and he was approaching bankruptcy. He should have signed a prenup. I think he did sign one that was very bad for him. Well, he should have signed a better prenup. He, he, he says that he was a fool and very like stupid and young and naive. He says that. So he had to have known going down. into this woman's seventh marriage that like maybe it would last, but also he was just a coming high off of like a three-year stroke recovery on a torture plan. <laughs> I think he was in his best you know state of mind. Well, he needed a better lawyer. <laughs> I don't think he even had a lawyer. No, well, he should have. His wife got him a lawyer. That's just against interest, Sam. <laughs> anyway, back to the book. He I went to see. His, <laughs> I mean, kind of. It's like I, it's what happened. He didn't. He made good decisions, Daniel. I didn't know, like it's bad decisions. People make bad decisions. It happens. He definitely did. All right. Yeah, he admits that. I don't know what you're what you're trying to get out of this. He wanted to like admit he failed. He's like, Danielle, <laughs> forgive me for failing so bad. <laughs> Just making the point, Sam. <laughs> okay. 
So he went to see his publisher, Tyrina, about publishing a new book of poetry. She tells him, no one wants to read poetry, it's a bad idea, no one will buy it. The dying earth was a fluke, and more so, while the dying earth was nostalgic because of the old earth connection, no one wants to read his modern poetry, which is all about, like, his current life, and it's all very angsty, and he's like, no one wants to read someone else's angst. Has there ever been a publisher who said, no, please don't give me more material to your best-selling novel? <laughs> she's like, she's like, this is not gonna, it's fine, this is not new material, like, this is not the same thing at all. I know, but she's not saying, no, not this, write me something that's similar to your other stuff so we can sell that Danielle, instead. Danielle, we'll get to that. Okay. Because <laughs> just marketing-wise, she could probably sell another book of poetry, maybe, if it no, had the she's right like, vibe. She's, she knows it's not going to sell. And she go, they go on with me that literacy has been declining steadily in the world web with less than 1% of the Gemini who actually read. He was only successful because his book was a must-have, what she called an example of the Pilgrim's Promise Effect. A book that everyone has in their home as like a social signal, which people don't actually read or anything. Right. Well, who cares how they got his book? He made millions of dollars off of it. (laughs) But she said it's not going to happen again, is her point. Like it was a social phenomenon. It was a lightning strike. It's not going to be a second occurrence. Well, they didn't think the first one was probably going to work, but there you are. They did because they published it. Well, yeah, but they, you never know. So he insists that they publish his new book of poetry. And she's like, sure, you've given us enough money. We'll publish whatever you want. She concedes after he brings it to her after a few weeks of work that it's beautiful, a real masterpiece. But she's like, no one will ever buy this. It's still not going to sell. And it turned out to be a massive flop. Uh, it gained okay. negative reviews and sold him like 23,000 copies the first year and 638 copies the second year. <laughs> Rough. Yep. And apparently, they knew it would be a flop, and they sort of cut back on the initial publishing run when they had the local AI for TransUnion look over the book, and the AI loved it. It was a huge success AI, which probably meant it was going to be terrible for people. (laughs) (laughs) And unfortunately, they couldn't even sell it to the AIs because the Technocore, they bought one copy that they instantly shared with the millions of AI. I was going to say, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, through the fat line, the second it was published. So I think she's something like, interstellar copyright doesn't mean much when you're dealing with silicon. He's on top. The author is very much on top of what the world actually turned into. Right. Uh, kind of amazing, right? <laughs> it is like, impressive. This is pre-internet, like pre-modern World Wide Web. It's like, yeah, that's right. So you got one copy. All the AI shared it. So he sold like one copy to millions of AI and no humans wanted to buy it. So there you go. The problem is this put Martin in a massive hole with regards to a large advance he was paid for this book that he now owes the difference on. Mm -hmm. So she convinces him to start churning out hack sequels to The Dying Earth. So what you were saying, Danielle, where she's like, hey, instead of writing your new art piece, bang out some cheesy sequels to The Dying Earth. That is completely guided, like the entire development is guided by focus groups. And he called it Dying Earth 2, and the (laughs) second book was a total bodice ripper. So first off, that's impressive, but I don't know yeah. how the dying earth poetry turns into a bodice ripper. Like it goes completely off the rails. He starts like doing like like this is what life was like back on older, like totally fictional, but like, you know, oh, the poor person who rides up to the mud to own their own plantation on dying earth or whatever. Like it's all about that pastoral sense of like when people like write about medieval romance now kind of thing. Did he keep it poetry or did like a fiction no. book? It was totally prose. Interesting. It's a huge success. He writes something like nine Dying Earth books over six years, becomes wealthy again. (laughs) Good for him. (laughs) Yeah. And he says that while it's easy to be a hack, he finds it unfulfilling and basically stopped writing poetry in the meantime, his muse having fled him. 
So one day after those nine dying earth books are published, he tells Tyrina that he's done. He's quitting the hack writing game and he sold his home to pay off the remaining debt he owes to Transline Publishing. And then he leaves for a three-week voyage to join the kingdom of Sad King Billy on Asquith. Oh yeah, Sad King Billy. Also, he still hadn't paid back his money. Yeah. So he got you know a massive advance and then he would keep getting advances on every book he published. And none of them were as big a success as his first book. And so the cost of his home and his lifestyle would outpace what he would get. And he's now with Sad King Billy. Yes. So his royal highness, King William the Twenty Third, is the lord of the kingdom of Windsor and Exile. He is a dour looking man, though not actually all that gloomy, and a great art lover. He has created sort of an enclave and is a patron to many artists. And he also has a stutter, which doesn't really come into anything. So I'm not going to talk about it again. Windsor and Exile are like places? No. Frames of mind? Asquith is the planet. He is the king of the kingdom of Windsor and Exile. The kingdom? Kingdom of Windsor and Exile. Okay. That's what it's called. <laughs> that's what it's called. I don't know what, that's okay. what the name of the, that's the name of it. I, I can't say it any other way. <laughs> Sorry. I was confused. It's, it's confusing. So Martin joins with him and becomes a friend to Billy over the course of 10 years living with him on Asquith. How does he meet up with him? I, I guess that Billy has sort of a standing invitation for artists. He, like, he'll patronize you and support you, become a patron for you if you apply or something. I don't know. Got it. Okay. He's well known in the in the world web. Like he's, he's a, the king of Windsor and Exile. Everyone yes, knows I King mean, Billy. Yeah, everybody knows King Billy. So when the General Horace Glennon Height Rebellion threatens Asquith, Billy decides to relocate his kingdom to Hyperion. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, apparently, he'd been planning this for some time, as android seed ships were already there preparing. Billy is fascinated with the mystery of the time tombs, and so decides to settle the colony, the City of Poets, near them. What is the draw to Hyperion? For King Billy, it's the time tombs. Well, yeah, the mystery. It, just, it seems like all the characters have some kind of tie-in with Hyperion. Yeah, that's why they're the pilgrims. Yes, I know, Sam. I've got that. <laughs> <laughs> there are billions of people in the world who don't, but they pick the seven who do. <laughs> Uh, great. Uh, <laughs> it's just so funny. Like, how dare they all have a connection? <laughs> I wasn't like mad about it. I was just saying that it's like very, it's a very book thing to do. <laughs> I mean, it is a very book thing to do. But to be fair, with billions and billions of people or more, I would imagine that some of them would have connections to planets. Oh, sure. I'm not arguing that there would be many. Okay. I don't know how these seven people were chosen, Sam. So what do I know? <laughs> well, I don't know they're chosen either, but apparently the all thing in the Church of the Strike agreed on it. So... <laughs> questionable <laughs> we don't know what the whole thing is yet danielle so maybe we barely know what the shrike is <laughs> so we learn that the planet hyperion was founded or colonized by people originally living on one of saturn's moons hyperion uh, but they were quite uh, dependent on terrestrial resupplies to live so they decided to emigrate to the new planet to become more independent naming it after the moon they left hyperion is one of the moons of saturn apparently so I, we didn't know that beforehand, right? I mean, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's so surprising to me. I feel like I thought it was outside of our solar system or something. No, no, no. The planet Hyperion isn't Saturn's moon. There is a moon on Saturn called Hyperion. Right why now. are there two of them, Sam? I just told you. The colonists, they left the moon Hyperion to go settle a new planet that they named after the moon they left. I was not listening because I got real sidetracked by the idea that Hyperion's moon was, <laughs> or Saturn's moon was Hyperion. <laughs> right. There was a moon in Hyperion. Okay. And okay. so there was a colony on Hyperion, the moon, and they were dependent on Earth resupplies. And so they decided to leave to become more independent, and they founded their own planet. They named it Hyperion after the That's place fine. they left. 
that's fine. I'm, I'm willing yeah. to accept that because that's what colonizers do. Yeah. Like, that's why we have a New England. <laughs> yes, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> they should call it a New Hyperion, but that would be more fun. <laughs> we also learned that Martin considers John Keats to be the purest poet that ever lived since he had a life dedicated almost entirely to poetic creation. Okay. And it's not really relevant, but Keats is a big Keats. deal to these books. So I, I, I know. I feel it. like I should brush up on my Keats a little bit. I'm not going yeah, to understand too, anything going, going on. <laughs> So Athquist was a leader in biofactoring of androids because they used them extensively in the setup of the colony with the understanding that after the Hyperion colony was established, the androids would be freed. And so Martin, Billy, and some 8,000 artists moved to the city of poets once the colony was established. However, despite its isolation and the way it integrates the other artists, Martin found no muse in his first years there. So he decides to kill himself. But first, he wants to spend some nine years dedicating himself to Dionysian principles. Okay, so he wants to kill himself, but first, he wants he's to like, spend nine years doing something else. <laughs> He wants to do a nine-year bender before killing himself. He was like, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> He's like, okay, nine years from today is my plan. <laughs> I don't know if he had a specific date in mind, but it ends up being nine years. Okay, sure. So he had a biosculptor turn him into a literal satyr by giving him like the goat legs and the hair, elongating his ears, and then modifying his sexual organs in quote-unquote interesting ways. For fun? No further details are given. <laughs> <laughs> is he still a satyr later on in the books? Is he no. currently a satyr? Oh, that's a shame. I know, right? <laughs> it would have been way more fun. <laughs> so he carried on for those nine years in drunken binges and innumerable raunchy affairs with every woman he could. So this is like a thing that people can do, just basically turn themselves into whatever they want. Yeah, plastic surgery. Wild, man. Yeah. And I like that women are like totally into it, which I mean, like would definitely be women totally into that. Yeah, like, oh, that's new. I got to try that guy's weird genitals. <laughs> It's not like he's actually a satyr. Right, exactly. But at some point, near where he was planning to kill himself, like just before that happens, citizens in the city start going missing. The first to go is Hoban Kirstis, the abstract impressionist. Well, who needs abstract art anyway? I like impressionism. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> That's what I thought. Anyway, so they set up sensor nets around the town and have security officers sweep the time tombs. They have mechs explore a 6,000 kilometer radius of the labyrinth and skimmers sweep the bridal range. None turn up anything. That was just after the very first person disappeared? Yeah. That's a lot of work for one person. You gotta, you gotta reassure the citizens that they're safe. I also, I want to point out that the bridal range is a mountain range on the continent of Equus. So I think that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> So then the deaths start. Gruesome deaths, people literally torn apart. Martin says, we were all secretly thrilled and titillated, which I kind of think foreshadows like modern true crime podcasts in a way. <laughs> or like those how to get away with murder shows or whatever. Yeah, I mean, we do have a certain abject fascination with murder <laughs> or terrible things, not even just necessarily murder. Yeah, we do, especially serial killers, which they conclude that's obviously some kind of serial killer amongst them. Yeah, I'd imagine. So then... It goes from killings to, like, full-on slaughter. There was no pattern to the murders. Bodies were found alone or in groups of up to three. Some were bloodless. Other were, like, horror movies with buckets of blood everywhere. Chancellor Lehman's daughter vanished while alone on the seventh-floor bathroom of Sad King Billy's palace, even though she had around-the-clock bodyguards. Where were the bodyguards? Probably standing outside the door. Guardian the bathroom. <laughs> that sounds terrible. They should have been inside the bathroom, I guess. She's got to go to the bathroom sometime. <laughs> So Martin actually knew one of the first victims, who was Sisypris Harris, which is just a great name. I love it. That's it mainly why name. I'm telling you this. 
Her head was the only part where they found, in the center of Lord Byron's plaza, Martin compared to a cat offering such trophies to their owners from mice or whatever they killed. So Sad King Billy goes one day to see Martin and discuss the killings. He asks for Martin's advice, and Martin's like, you should leave. We should just pack this whole place in and call it quits. Why is he asking Martin? Because they're friends. Okay. Though Martin admits he probably would not leave with them. Billy then asks Martin about the legend of the Shrike, which at this point was more legend than well-known. Like, like the Shrike was, was more established in the future, and then it was at this point. Because the Hyperion had been lightly colonized, and the Shrike had not made a lot of appearances. Okay. Billy knows that Martin had accessed the Shrip's computer for information on the Shrike months before the first appearances. And Billy is on to say that if he were a detective, he'd be inclined to suspect Martin, since the city's least productive member had resumed writing again mere days after the first killings, and has become a social recluse working furiously on his cantos. I'd like to assume that it's Martin murdering all these characters. It's not, of course, because... It'd be funny. <laughs> Billy then reveals he knows who the killer is. It's the Shrike, obviously. But obviously. Could be King Billy. Is King Billy the Shrike? No. Sorry. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not, not everyone's a strike. And besides, Martin's not having sex with him, so he can't be the strike. I don't think that's how it works. It has in this book so far, Danielle. <laughs> So one of the women, and one of the victims, uh, would secretly court her liaisons with various young men. And it's in one of these recordings of her and her lover being torn to pieces that they catch the barest glimpse of the Shrike in one frame of the video. How do they know it's Shrike? Because it looks like the Shrike. <laughs> do they know what the Shrike looks like? Yeah, the legend of the Shrike is forearmed blade creature with red eyes. Okay. Are they sure it's not somebody in a costume? <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> no one can move and delay time that way, Danielle. Okay. I'm just throwing out ideas, Sam. I didn't know it was set in stone that it really was the Shrike. It's pretty conclusive it's the Shrike. Okay. Because they can't find any evidence of anything else. Sorry, I questioned something I'm not reading. <laughs> I mean, you can question it. I'm just telling you, Danielle, <laughs> it's not going to be someone in a costume as a Shrike. That would be pretty easy to find if they have sensor nets. It'd be pretty hilarious, though. Yeah. It'd be funny, but it wouldn't go on for months or years. So then Billy insists that Martin tells him everything he learned about the Shrike and the Shrike legend so he can protect him from the security forces because the security forces want to interrogate him fully using cortical shunts. And he's like, no, let me talk to him first, see if I can get information that way. And the cortical shunts- no, Martin. Talk to Martin. Okay, got it. Yeah, if they have the strike in custody, they wouldn't have this problem. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> I thought I missed something more important than that. <laughs> So basically say, Martin, they want to interrogate you. You just tell them what you know about the Shrike. I won't let them interrogate you. So they thought that it was Martin just because he... No, they didn't think it was Martin. They thought then it was a Shrike. But they grabbed Martin for fun? No, because Martin had been researching the Shrike before the killing started. So they thought they had some kind of connection to it. Like, Martin started researching the Shrike, the killing started, and then Martin starts writing furiously and changes his entire personality. So they thought he had been, like, taken over by the Shrike? Or had some connection believer? to it. I don't okay. know, Danielle. That's what the interrogation is about, to find out the information. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> They're like, there's some connection here. We don't know what it is. We got to interrogate them to find out. That's what interrogations got, got do. It, they it, get it, information. It. <laughs> <laughs> if they knew the information, they wouldn't need to interrogate them. <laughs> I could just asked him. I mean, that's what they're well, doing now. Well, that's what he's but... doing. <laughs> Danielle, you keep suggesting the answers of things that's already I told you that they're doing. I just said that's what they're doing now. I did say that at the end of my <laughs> thing. But they originally, like, took him. They could have just gone to his house and said, hey, dude, what's up? He totally they looked at the strike. Him. No one took him. You said they were going to interrogate him. That sounds very uh So the security force were like, let's interrogate this guy. And King Billy's like, no, let me just talk to him. Okay, got it. Because security force are security force. They're gung-ho. They're overreach. Whatever. So they ask Martin questions? <laughs> so King Billy talks to Martin, says, tell me everything you know about the Shrike. And Martin admits he's looking up the information to use the Shrike legend in his poem. And that according to the local Shrike cult, the precursor of the Shrike church, the Shrike 
Shrike is the Lord of Pain and the Angel of Final Atonement comes from a place beyond time to announce the end of the human race. So it hangs around the time tombs and will come out when it's time for humanity to become extinct. Also, the church believes that humanity somehow created the Shrike, and while it's immortal and beyond time, it's not a god, more like a living nightmare or a grim reaper. How did humanity create it? Unclear. (laughs) Okay. I like the idea that humanity created it and it's a harbinger of their demise. Well, I mean, that's about the idea, like, humanity has created its own extinction, which, you know, metaphorically is probably true. <laughs> yes. And this is just a physical manifestation of that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I'm on board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Martin states, as Billy asks for, like, is there anything else you can tell me? He says, yes, the Shrike is my muse. Ooh, creepy. Yeah. So the next bit of narrative, Martin states that, of course, I summoned the Shrike. I knew that. I had summoned it by beginning my epic poem about it. Okay, I guess if humanity can bring it into existence, Martin can summon it by writing it down on a piece of paper. Why not? So he is, you know, basically remember has always talked about how like humanity's big, biggest power is the written word. He's like, I basically con- either conjure the Shrike into existence or summon it from the ether or wherever it was hiding by starting my poem about it. I like language how- is powerful. Yeah, language is powerful. However, well, I'm not saying I, I believe like, it. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> I love the idea because he's he's already said he thought he was a god, right? Right. Yeah. So I like much. I like the idea that well, he's he says like, that a true my... poet is a god, and right. he's not necessarily a true poet. He probably thinks he is. Let's be honest. Not yet. He hasn't finished his cantos, <laughs> and so you know he's like. My words summon this creature. I am that powerful with my writing. Yeah, no. Again, I like this is told in first person, so it's definitely Martin's narrative, and he's very egocentric. I, I don't, again, I think he's a bit of unreliable narrator in here. I love that. It's really I good, like, right? I like that you'd be like, yep, I did it. That I have that power. <laughs> Couldn't possibly be anything else. It must be me. <laughs> it's really fun. So he good renamed job, his poem the Hyperion Cantos, which is also the name of the series of books Dan Simmons wrote. The four books are called the Hyperion Cantos. Oh. Oh, I see what he did there. Yeah, which is about the passing of humanity and the quote-unquote hubris of a race which dared to murder its homeworld through sheer carelessness and then carried that dangerous arrogance to the stars only to meet the wrath of a god which humanity had helped sire. So does this uh, four-book series just end in humanity's destruction? I really hope it does. I I hope like that right there (laughs) is the summary of the books. Because that's great, right? How great is that? That's like, oh yeah, this is what the books are about. I just told you here in the first book. (laughs) So after another score of murders, Billy finally evacuates the city, with people either going to the cities of Keats or Endymion, but most heading back to the world web, abandoning the planet. Billy himself relocates to Keats to live in a palace there, but 200 people remain behind, Martin included, though the murders continue about one every two weeks. That's not going to be very long until they're all dead. Well, for the next 12 years, Martin never left the city save to undo his satyr transformation with another surgeon or to buy food <laughs> and supplies every two years or so. The Shrike pilgrimages has been renewed and he would encounter the pilgrims as they passed by the city and he became kind of a local legend like, oh, the weird guy who lives out, you know, by the time tombs in the old ruins of the city of poets. Did everybody else die? All 199 others? Well, he lived in King Billy's empty palace alone, working on his poem. Eventually, he was the only person left in the city by the end of the 12 years. So, yes. Did he... Everyone either died or left. Right. Why? 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 Why is he still living there? Because he's working on his poem. His muse is there, Danielle. Okay, but he could go to the next city over and we'll work on it there. And but the, his muse the would still wouldn't exist. come with him. No. The Shrike has to be where his muse is, Danielle. Does he actually see him? <laughs> quote unquote he never saw the shrike though he had the sense that it was around watching him when he slept like he'd hear a noise or have a sense of its presence hard pass <laughs> 
After one of his short trips to the time tombs, he returned to find Sad King Billy in his study, reading his unfinished cantos. He became filled with rage. His 12 year cantos? It is massive, Danielle. It is like, how long is this sucker? <laughs> it is massive. Stacks and stacks of paper. It's huge. He's such a little weirdo. I love him. He's very weird, right? He became <laughs> filled with rage at having his work read without his permission. Billy observes that he hasn't written anything new in months, since after the last other inhabitant of the city disappeared, in fact. He posits that Martin can't compose his poem unless the shrike his muse is killing. Creepy. Yeah, right? So, like, I like the shrike's murder is the creative fuel for Martin's epic poem about the destruction of humanity. That nobody's going to read because it's, like, millions of pages long. <laughs> Martin then lifts a brass candlestick to bash Billy's head in, but Billy uses a neural stunner to knock him out. Does he try and kill him because he is correct, or he's just got like driven mad by all of this? A bit of the latter. He's mad that he's reading his poem without permission, and he's also a bit insane at this point. Okay. Got it. So he comes to, he's propped against a stone bench in a courtyard with a dry fountain. Billy tells him that he's sorry, but this madness has to end, and he proceeds to take the entirety of Martin's manuscript, like, again, stacks of paper, to the fountain with a bucket of kerosene. So Billy takes a lighter and starts rolling up the igniting reams of paper, tossing them into the fountain to burn, occasionally reading passages out as he does so. And he tells Martin, you called it forth, it must be finished. Mm -hmm. I like that Billy buys into now, it. Now Billy's on board, he's like, yeah, you definitely called the strike forth. <laughs> Definitely. You, you, sir, just you were the one that called forth the demon. <laughs> this poem is why the strike is here. <laughs> Wild man. So Martin cries out and struggles to like overcome his sort of waning paralysis to save his work, begging Billy to stop. But then a third figure is suddenly in the courtyard, impossibly tall, forearmed, covered in metal spikes with glowing red eyes. Ooh, it's a man in the costume. It is the man of the costume, correct? <laughs> and he's like, I gotcha! Uh, you've been punked. It's Aston Kutcher. <laughs> no, of course no. it's a shrike, Daniel. <laughs> so Billy calls out, go, return to the pit from whence you came, which is about as effective as you'd think. It's <laughs> like, well, that's gonna work. It happens does Shrike's not. like, okay, I, you got me. I'll you go win. back. <laughs> You're burning the book about me. I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> the shrike grabs him, like, from behind, lifts him up high into the air, and starts to, like, pull Billy into a, a backwards hug, like, a, from behind, <laughs> like, piercing his you. chest with his body spikes. <laughs> Poor sad King Billy. So, yeah, Billy's being impaled on the shrike's body by the shrike. Billy begs Martin to destroy the remaining cantos, burning pages of which he still clutches in his hands. Martin manages to pick up the lighter, but can't bring himself to light the remaining pages. Jeez, Martin, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, he drops the lighter, he grabs the bucket, and he douses Billy and the Shrike in the kerosene, and they immediately go up in flames as the flaming pages Billy is clutching catch with the kerosene. Like the He's kerosene. not going to die, though. Well, and Amelia goes up in what he calls a perfect sculpture of flame, with the Shrike seeming not to care, and Billy writhing and letting out a horrid scream. Yeah, you're like killing somebody in a really terrible way. Yeah, yeah. Well, then suddenly they vanish. They're gone. And Martin is alone in the courtyard. I'm assuming that Sad King Billy has become like the future Shrike. Like the Shrike needed a being to like take over to continue on. Absolutely not, but good guess. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been interesting. <laughs> it would have been like, oh, how the Shrike reproduces. Yeah, or something. <laughs> He continues on his life. <laughs> so over the next year, Martin recopied his cantos from the damaged pages and rewrote what was burned, but he never finished his poem. His muse had fled. I don't know how you'd ever remember stuff that's on those pages. I mean, 
You've written stuff, you know, like you can't remember stuff that's like six pages ago. Absolutely. What was that character's name again? <laughs> I can't remember things I've read six pages ago. <laughs> Wild. Martin stayed in the city for several more years, fairly insane by this point, but eventually, quote, the madness burned itself out, although the embers will always glow. So there's that. So after his madness had subsided, he hiked the 1,500 kilometers back to civilization with nothing but a backpack full of his manuscript, scavenging food and water from rock eels and snow. Uh, that was 250 years ago, and he admits that the last quarter millennium is not really worth talking about for him. Why does he keep surviving? <laughs> we'll get to that. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so he extended his life through Paulson treatments and two illegal long-haul cryogenic voyages, each of which let him move through another century of time, though they took a toll on his memory and brain function. Mm -hmm. The end of the chapter, he says, I waited then. I wait still. The poem must be finished. It will be finished. In the beginning was the word. In the end, past honor, past life, past caring. In the end will be the word. And that's how it ends. Okay, Martin. <laughs> so he's waiting to finish his manuscript. He's living so he can find the will or the muse to finish his manuscript, which he considers okay. to be of, of ultimate import to humanity. Okay. Obviously, there's a lot going on with the decision of which people were supposed to go on this pilgrimage. But yeah. I'd love the thought process of like, let's put this guy on the ship. <laughs> <You don't really. laughs> this is a good idea. I love that they're like, oh, this guy, he doesn't think too highly of himself. Let's throw him into one of these nut jobs. We are definitely going to put him with a Drake. It definitely will not go wrong. <laughs> he this won't guy... light them all on fire. <laughs> I mean, Kazad wants to kill the Shrike. Martin, he wants to use it as a muse. I'm not sure what Leonard quite wants. Maybe he wants the Shrike to free him from eternal life. Maybe. Solid guess. But yeah, they um they really gathered quite the crew of crazy pants people here. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Good job. Three stories in so far, Danielle. Have you learned a lot about the Shrike? No. Good. <laughs> <laughs> So if he's spiky. He's spiky and likes to kill. That's pretty much it. Yeah, I might be on his side. I don't know. We'll have to fight out. Yeah, so, I mean, I would say this is one of the slower chapters. There's not a lot of plot or action in this chapter. It's more introspective, but it's also, like, weirdly interesting. Like, oh, this is humanity writing its own destruction, basically. Like, there's a lot of layers of metaphor there. Yeah, I there. think the concept is cool. Yeah. Like, the story, even the story concept of it is cool. Yeah, exactly. You'd, like, read that story alone. Right. <laughs> I would think. I hope that humanity does destroy itself in book four. I hope that I hope that summary was the actual summary of Hyperion. I honestly don't remember how it ends, but... <laughs> I do remember, I mean, humanity doesn't do great. I'll put it that way <laughs> for a lot of the books. I don't remember if it recovers or not. Rough. Yeah. So there you go. The Hyperion Cantos chapter. Wonderful. Who's next, Sam? Which Who's character? next? Do you remember the name of the scholar? Not even a little bit. Saul Weintraub. Oh, good old Saul. It's going to be great. Yeah. Saul Weintraub. The next story is called The Scholar's Tale, The River Lethe's Taste is Bitter. His story is about his university days. It is absolutely not. <laughs> And what's the point of making him a scholar? <laughs> I remember this story the best, I think, of the other ones, because it's kind of my favorite, I think, because it's one of the weirdest. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Oh, man. Uh, what do you think it's about? I already tried with the university tales, and you said it was no. <laughs> okay, try again. Give me another one. What was the title again? The River Lethe's Taste is Bitter. The River Lethe. Leffy? Like the name, that's the name of the river? Yeah, the one in, in uh, Hades. Oh. Um, <laughs> I thought you said Lefty at first, and I was very confused. No, not the Lefty. Uh, it was Left-Handed <laughs> River. 
don't know. No. The river in Haiti is that when you drink from it, you forget. Uh, does he have memory loss? <laughs> they all seem to have a little bit of memory loss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would not. I'm, a, I'm sure they have some trauma-induced memory loss. <laughs> Uh, I don't know, Sam. Great. Well, we're going to find out next time on the Hyperion Cantos, brought to you by me. <laughs> by me. <laughs> by me. I am the one bringing it to you. And I'm just a sidekick. You're here to like, <laughs> ask me why they aren't doing the things they're already doing in the book. <laughs> you know what? This is a very confusing chapter. <laughs> it was. It was very confusing, and he makes a lot of bad decisions, but that's sort of like his thing. He is not a good. He does not make good choices. That is more. Yeah. That's definitely who I would pick to go on a pilgrimage to save humanity. The man who doesn't make good choices. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I think that all of his choices are still better than Kassad's choice to not ask questions when he had the opportunity. Oh, so. gosh. I don't even... We could have like, solved half the plot if he had just asked the chick he was sleeping with, like, hey, what's up? <laughs> yeah, right? So I think like all of Martin's bad decisions are like... Yeah, those are bad decisions people make in life. It happens, you know, when they get money or like when they get sudden wealth or, or whatever. But Kassad's failure is more fundamental. Yeah. So, hey, Shrike, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know if you have a thought for Danielle on what you would like her muse to be if it's not the Shrike. <laughs> I don't want to be muse. Shrike mused. Yeah, what muse would she have? If you have an idea for that, you can send her a message at bookretorts.com. I guess you could also tweet Instagram or Facebook us at bookretorts. I'm also accepting, or we are also accepting, but mostly me, accepting pictures drawn of the Shrike. Feel free yes. to send those. Oh, yes. We will we gladly want Shrike art. retweet the heck out of those. <laughs> In fact, if you can give me like any art from this book, because it has some really crazy descriptions. Like, I want art of the floating raft toilet on the infinite ocean world because that's fun <laughs> that really did stick with me as well i would agree i want to see like a bob ross or, or like even norman rockwell or some kind of uh, a landscape of like all the beauty you know something the beauty of the world and then there's this floating toilet in the middle that of would it. be terrible because it's like a public restroom the way they make it sound is just like it's, it's on completely a raft. open. It's just yeah, like in the middle of the ocean where the no open. one is. And I'm like, I just don't know. <laughs> like, he describes it as like a, a joke by the architect. It's a terrible idea. It's great. I think it's hilarious. I would never use it, but it's hilarious. Go hang out on it. Anyway, send that art to us. We'd love to see it. We would. 100%. Well, until next time, don't use murderous, immortal, time-traveling killing machines as your muse. <laughs> I mean, that's solid life advice given to you by Sam. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take it to heart, everybody. Yeah, please do. Until then, bye. <laughs> Take care, everybody. few weeks on sam's life nope that's not being broadcast <laughs> danielle what about me makes you think i'm the kind of person who would broadcast my life not nothing 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 about you <laughs> that's right look danielle <laughs>
I'm not a volunteer. <laughs> Find out. This week's on Sam's Life. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me hear the Sam's Life theme song again, Danielle. I want, I want, I and also, got some lyrics. It. I think I made it up. <laughs> oh, you think you made it up. Uh, yeah, that's, I, mean, that's I think a good, I made it up the second guess. time. It was like a complete guess as to what I hummed the first time. <laughs> well, you know, make it up a third time. Give it some lyrics. <laughs> I'll work on it. Maybe for next episode, I will have a Sam's Life theme. 